Welcome everyone to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am Neil Pollock, the Editor-in-Chief of Book and Film Globe and your host for this weekly roundup of the worlds of books and film and streaming TV. You can find our site at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. I have chosen as our opening song this week, Enjoy the Silence by Depeche Mode, because Sharon Dane, our frequent contributor, has reviewed a book with, uh, not silence in the title, but at least quiet in the title, and this felt like a nice, uh, nice throwback to my youth, my youth at the Devil House in Tempe, Arizona, smoking clothes and dancing to Depeche Mode. That was me once upon a time. Now, I'm the editor-in-chief of a pop culture website, How Far We've Come. Welcome, Sharon Bain. Thanks so much for having me back on. I thought you chose that song because it was kind of ominous and techno, and maybe that puts you in the right frame of mind to talk about uh, such a quiet place. That, that was how I interpreted your artistry there. Yes, yes, thank you. That's that's exactly what I was thinking, Sharon. So I, I, I appreciate you. Uh, you explain me better than I can explain myself sometimes. So uh, Sharon um, is is calling in from the streets of Chicago, or perhaps a room in Chicago, a place that I uh, I want. Not like it matters. I mean, I, I, I could be doing this, you know, live from Eswatini, and nobody would know the difference. But hello. Hello, I'm actually in a parking lot in Chicago, outside of a pizza place, so uh, it's... Which, it which, is, which pizza place are uh, Nick and Vito's. That just, you just picked two random Italian names, that's not an actual restaurant. It's Eater 38, it's gonna be good. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Nick, Nick, Nick and Vito's, right. Uh, yeah, it's probably, probably owned by some restaurant group based in Las Vegas. Anyway, you, uh, <laughs> you uh, reviewed um, a novel for us this week uh, called such a quiet place, not related to the quiet place movie franchise. It's like a, it's a like a, a suburban thriller from from Megan Miranda. Yeah, and and uh, you're right. It is not uh, related to the movie such a or, uh, a quiet place, but those two properties do share um, sort of a sense of uh, major you know bad stuff going down behind the scenes. Um, what I love about Megan Miranda's books is that they fit that thriller mode, which is very plot-driven and very crazy stuff is going down, and there's a twist, you know, about every uh, 25 pages. But she takes the time to also let us get to know the characters a little bit. It's just, it's a higher-brow level of thriller, which is why I keep coming back to her books. And this one is is no exception. Um, you know, some of our listeners may be familiar with her work from uh, her uh, Reese Witherspoon um, book club pick, The Last House Guest. Um, this one is set in a uh, just super charming lakeside community full of um, families and nice houses. And there's also this uh, active homeowners association with a message board that figures very prominently in the plot. And as our novel opens, um, our main character's in the kitchen, and all of a sudden her roommate rolls right back into the house, which is a little bit surprising because she's been in jail for the last year and a half, accused of poisoning the next-door neighbors. And so then we're off kind of figuring out what really happened that night, and everybody's a suspect, everybody's got some secrets, and that message board um, really takes off, and she does a great job of interspersing these kind of bizarre conversations in the middle of the prose. Um, anybody who's ever gone on next door will recognize these kind of neighborhood busybodies. Upper middle class noir, you know these these are these are setting anyone who is uh, who you know it, it seems very Austin-y. <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's a bedroom community. It's people who have pretty nice houses, who care about their property values, who, if they have kids, they want them to go to the right schools, um, want, you know, kind of nothing bad to ever happen outwardly where anyone else would see it. And um, obviously, you know, having a murder happen in your neighborhood is not 
something that is going to get you, you know, highly rated uh, by a, a realtor. But, you know, each person on the street has uh, some secrets um, that get uncovered over the course of the book. And, um, you know, what really happened, I don't want to spoil it here, obviously, because I want you to read it. Um, but uh, it, it's, it, you know, it is absolutely not what you think at all. Um, she digs really into, like, who's willing to speak the truth. This, this roommate who comes back from jail is just a hot mess, willing to just roll into any situation and say exactly what you're not supposed to say. And everyone is afraid of her. And you see why they all turned against her, but she's kind of, she's investigating this murder. All right. So Such a Quiet Place by Megan Miranda sounds very, very beach ready, very fun. And, and a good example of this kind of genre. Megan Miranda, Sharon, I'm guessing not related to Carmen Miranda. Not related to Carmen Miranda. She actually, interestingly enough, is a former young adult writer who's turned mm. to adult books. All right. Well, there we go. So, um, meanwhile, you also wrote this week about uh, something a little more serious. The Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators is uh, engaging in one of these um, kinds of, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, hair-pulling, shirt, uh, clothes-rending struggles that um, seems to have enveloped the entire book industry right now. It is a mess that has been brewing for some time. Um what has happened most recently is that uh, the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators is just kind of imploding in terms of how it's, it's running things. Uh, it's just come out and promised to make some changes in part because for the past few weeks there has been a great deal of discussion and a great deal of coverage of uh, a debate that started when a new member of the group who is Palestinian, uh, asked some questions about why the group had uh, issued a statement uh, kind of condemning anti-Jewish hate and standing in support with the group's Jewish members. And Yeah, why would you, do, why would you condemn anti-Jewish hate? I mean... Well, you know, as April Powers, who was until recently the uh, agency's uh, diversity and equity inclusion uh, specialist leader, the first one in the group's history, um, you know, she cited there's just a mushrooming of anti-Semitic, uh, you know, hate speech, actual attacks. I mean, I think anybody who follows the news sees that um, this is a huge issue. And they, the group issued a statement, and this Palestinian writer said, you know, what about us? And there was some back and forth in the comments, and uh, this woman's comments as well as other folks who were asking, well, why don't you come out, uh, you know, and, and support our Muslim members? They are also experiencing hate. And uh, this consultant said, well, if we see like a really big spike in anti-Muslim hate, we will certainly speak out. And then just like deleted the whole thread, deleted the comments, came back, and that just exploded on Twitter and everywhere. Newsweek got into it. Many commentators, um, you know, sort of got involved in really what, how SEWBI, uh, or I'm sorry, SEBWI, I always mess that up. But, they, you know, and, and eventually, um, you know, the head of the organization didn't really say anything. She'd been off on vacation and then kind of rolls back in and says, we've accepted the resignation of this um, diversity and equity uh, uh, leader. And then it was a whole nother wave of, you know, they've, she's been fired for speaking out against anti-Semitism, which actually wasn't what had happened, but that is absolutely what the prevailing narrative has been out there um, from a lot of commentators. Right. So She wouldn't have resigned if this controversy hadn't erupted over her daring to speak out against anti-Semitism. And I'm like, you know... And, I, I'm not an Islamophobe, and I don't think Islamophobia is is uh, is good. But the anti-Semitism was in the news more than Islamophobia was. You know, if this had been 2004, it would have made a little bit more sense. 
Well, I you know, think when, coming, I mean, I hear what you're saying, and trust me, I mean, one of the things, you know, I will say as, you know, as someone who is Jewish, I appreciate statements uh, supporting Jewish members of things and speaking out against anti-Jewish hate, which is absolutely on the rise. I feel like if it's your job to manage diversity and inclusion, you may need a better you know, sense of how to handle, like, you know, these things are going to happen on social media. If it's not speaking out about, you know, this marginalized group, it is speaking out about a different marginalized group. And how do you handle it when people feel like you're not doing enough? To me, and, and I really thought about this a lot because of where I sit personally, the whole issue with this is she should have been able to handle that and deflect it in a way that it didn't just blow up into this whole referendum on Israel-Palestine, which is what happened. Well, the problem is she wasn't speaking out about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. She was talking about anti-Semitic um, actions, you know, beatings on the streets of Los Angeles and New York and elsewhere in the world that had nothing to do with the Middle East. And, you know, and I feel like you should be able to say that is bad. We support our Jewish friends without wading in to the complicated politics of the, of the Gaza Strip. You know, yeah, it's I like, mean, I mean, I, and I will agree. We are often on opposite sides of the free speech. Like what, what counts as, you know, what you can say and what you can't say. I, I will agree there, and interestingly enough, even the original, you know, complaint uh, commenter, who's this aspiring children's book writer, she said they should totally have made that statement. That was a totally appropriate statement to make. But when I asked questions about, you know, why, I, I think there was an assessment that there was also hate against Muslims and Palestinians. Um, you know, one thing that's uh, just happened in the last. Uh, 24 hours since our story published is that now several authors who are part of um, the group's diversity and equity and inclusion committee have actually resigned, including um, uh, Lori Hall Sanderson, who our listeners may know as the National Book Award nominated uh, author of Speak and Shout, um, Meg Medina, Melissa Stewart, uh, I think something like five or six of them have just stepped down. Um, so that's the latest wrinkle in um, what's going on. But then it, it just, when I talk about mushrooming, like everybody who's ever had a challenge with this group and how it manages itself, now that's all up for grabs. The discussion of how they had a provision that prevented volunteers from the group from talking bad about the group publicly, that is up for discussion. You know, what, who sits on its board, how it handles its money, it's just a whole, it's a reckoning. It is a reckoning. It's, it's a constant uh, source of, um, I don't know about amusement, but of interest watching the children's book world continually step on a rake. Well, there is always... never seems to end. It, it does never seem to end. And I've thought about this a lot. And I think part of it is folks who write for children, you know, care a lot about the messages that go out in the world. And they, I think the discussions just get more heated and they want to make sure they're doing the right thing. And I think opinions get very strong in a way that we don't always see in those who write books for adults unless you know you're losing your book contract and uh you know you get to talk about cancellation but it does it it, it is a, a a lively place of discussion uh the, the the social media for children's book writers it really is that is one one way to look at it, or you can you can look you can also look at it as like a, a battle royale where there are, there will be no winners. There's just going to be one one children's book author like all beaten and bloodied, left standing to tell their their, their stories of of yeah, adolescent angst or whatever. Anyway, but that but Sharon, thank you once again for reporting on um, on this uh, on this continuing saga. Uh, enjoy eating uh, pizza at Guido and Tony's or wherever the heck you're going today. And uh, we'll, we'll, well, we'll do. Thanks for having me on. So Michael Washburn wrote a couple of pieces for us this week. The first piece was a review of the new short story by Dave Eggers. 
the Museum of Rain. You know, I have a uh, long and complicated personal history with Dave Eggers myself. He published my first book, the Neil Pollock Anthology of American Literature, and was my editor and mentor at McSweeney's, both the magazine and the website, way back when in the days, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And then Eggers and I had a little falling out, for various reasons that I won't go into. They're melodramatic and silly, and had a lot to do with my own uh, personal drug use and ego and arrogance, and some to do with the fact that uh, he wanted to take McSweeney's in a different direction than I was interested in taking it. But I had no say in it because it wasn't my publication. In any case, Eggers has moved on to have a vast and diverse and successful literary career, and you can't argue with talent at the end of the day. Making his first appearance this week on the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast, Mr. Michael Washburn is here. You've written many, many articles for Book and Film Globe, but this is the first time we've ever spoken. Uh, I believe any- so. Any form, so look, you know. Let's, let's hope this the blind date works out. Uh, you had two pieces this. <laughs> you had two pieces this week. Uh, one, um, one a book review like Sharon, and one a, like Sharon also a more newsy type piece. We'll talk about the book first. So tell us a little bit about the Museum of Rain. Sure. So the Museum of Rain is eight thousand words long, and that's really kind of at the outer range for a short story. I wouldn't call it a novella. I'd call it a longer story, and it's about a man who is in his 70s, and he attends a family gathering in California, and there are a lot of people there from different generations, and he agrees to take the kids on a trek through the woods to a remote spot where he has assembled the titular museum. And what this really consists of is a bunch of jars full of rainwater from different places that he has been to. Now, he is a combat veteran. He took part in the U.S. invasion of Granada, and he got wounded, and he's had a very eventful life. He's traveled around. He's been to London. He spent a lot of time in South America, and he's also been around the States a fair amount. And he had brought with him these jars full of rain that fell in these different locations and he assembled them into a museum in this remote spot in the California woods and this story may be a little surprising if you know the name Dave Eggers and if you think this is going to be some fantastically challenging dense difficult book it's really very easy to read, and the language is rather simple. It's a little bit like the Hemingway story. And I guess one thing I like about it is that it could be a metaphor, it could be an illusion, and that is certainly how I chose to read it, or it could equally just as well be a story about a man leading a bunch of kids through the woods to look at some jars full of rainwater. And... There's this kind of ambiguity to it, uh, but when I read it, I really thought about the relationship between the creators of art, and I'm using art in the broad sense of the term, literature, uh, painting, sculpture, drama, dance, music, poetry, and the people who receive and try to interpret the art. Because uh, the man, he's taking these kids with him, and they're fairly well-behaved. Uh, some of them are a little bit rambunctious, and maybe there are a few disciplinary problems. Uh, I think the bigger question is, what are they going to make of this museum when they finally get to it? This isn't going to be like any museum they've ever been to, and why did this strange old man assemble these jars of rainwater? What are we supposed to make of it? What is the meaning of it all? Right. And why did, he, why did he think that this could possibly be of interest to us? We could be at home using our Xbox or something, you know, and he's, he's taking us to this, this spot in the woods. And I really thought about how the creators of art are channeling something deeply and intensely personal and private and putting it out there for the world to digest. And in a sense, on a certain level, it is like taking a bunch of kids through the woods to this remote spot and not knowing what they're going to make of the museum, the shrine, when they finally get there. 
So I thought this was an interesting metaphor, and I gave some examples in the article that I wrote, the review, I should say, of artists who have had encounters with fans who really did not take the art the way that the artist might have hoped. And well, uh, certainly, and certainly, I, certainly, Dave Eggers has, had, especially early in his career, had a lot of issues with that. And you know, the thing about Eggers that uh, I mean, for all my many, many personal anxieties surrounding him, which have you know, which are very unique to me and no one else, you know, the guy has like has you know had had quite a career, varied career. And uh, you know he he is not, not, he's an artist who is very uh, open to a variety of interpretations. You know he's you can't write, you can't quite pin him down. The one thing that I would say that it, that, that runs through his work is this sort of anti technological. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't. I, so I, I feel you know I, I you know there, you can't you can't uh, I don't know how much of his stuff you've read, but it does seem to sort of continually come up. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a writer of short stories, and I have enjoyed some of his short fiction, particularly in his collection, How We Are Hungry. And uh, I think he's kind of a master of the form. I, I like the way that he writes. I like his style. And the stories in that collection, I have to say, they're, they're somewhat more formal and, and more if you will, uh, imposing in style and tone and structure than the Museum of Rain. So this, I think this may have been a bit of a departure. But the part of me keeps saying, like, oh, I wish Eggers would, would you know, jump the shark or go off the rails <laughs> somehow. <laughs> um, just because of this, this sort of personal, you know, situation I've had with him. But he just, he just keeps getting better and better. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing we can do. So, so, some people are just good, you know. He, he's he's a really talented writer. There's no question about it. So, uh, so when the his novel break, comes out, when his novel The Every comes out in the fall, I hope you let me review it for BFG. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for you know, the, uh, yeah. Why not? And you know, I think that's going to be a big hit. It's a it's a sequel to his novel The Circle, which was sort of an anti um, anti Facebook book, and this is more of an anti Amazon book. And, you know, he's, he's, he's smack on the zeitgeist with this stuff, as usual. So, uh, The Museum of Rain by Dave Eggers. Uh, Michael Washburn reviewed it. Michael, you also wrote about Peter de Vries, who is a, uh, a Dutch journalist who was tragically shot. And he died yesterday, I believe. He was shot and killed um, mm-hmm. in Amsterdam last week. Do, do we know yet what what was that, what that was about? I believe that they're still trying to figure that out, but I have little doubt that it had to do with his very aggressive involvement in the prosecution of mafia organizations in Holland. I came to know him kind of through an indirect roundabout route. I was interested in the Natalie Holloway case in Aruba for a long time, and I read this best-selling book by Lucy Pulitzer and Paul Thompson, Portrait of a Monster, and the monster referred to in the title, of course, is Zoran Vanderslit, who was convicted of the murder of Stephanie Flores in Peru and remains the prime suspect in the Holloway case, although he has not been prosecuted for that. And the police were stumped for a long time. They, they arrested Vanderslit and the Calpo brothers in Ruba and let them go and arrested them again and let them go again. And they just couldn't build a strong enough case, and they were hampered particularly by the fact that they did not have the body. And that's always a huge problem in a homicide case. And so Peter DeVries got involved. Uh, he had been known in the Netherlands for reporting on the kidnapping of Prentice Heineken, the beer tycoon, and uh, a lot of other true crime reporting that he produced. And he was an outstanding investigative journalist. And he got involved. He was acquainted with a young man, Patrick Vander Eem, whom he encouraged to get into the good graces of Vanderslid and pretend to be the guy's pal and hang out with him and even go so far, reportedly, as to start cocaine in front of Vanderslid in order to make Vanderslid think that Patrick was just as much of a renegade and, and was uh, not with the fuzz and was on his side. And so all this led to the recording of a conversation between these two young men, and 
Again, Peter DeVries was instrumental in rigging the car in which this conversation happened with recording devices. And Vanderslip disclosed that she had been with Natalie Holloway when she died, and that they were having this romantic encounter on the beach, and that she had a seizure. And instead of doing what any normal person would do and calling emergency services, she called a friend from a payphone and had the friend come and take Holloway out to sea and dump the body in the ocean. And so this was a shocking admission and probably would have never come before the world if not for the involvement of Peter DeGreese. So that's the kind of journalist he was. He was very involved in cases and, and as I said in the article, went beyond the conventional understanding of, of what a reporter does and inserted himself and became a player in the cases he was reporting on. He hosted a TV show in the Netherlands as well, right? Like kind of an America's Most Wanted kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yes, you know, he was not... Yeah, so he was not... Um, he was not someone who sat idly by and, and uh, he wasn't... He was an investigative journalist, but he, he had... He, I, doesn't, I wouldn't say gonzo is the right term for him because he was definitely still in the, in the sort of the spirit of the crime reporter. You know, he wasn't mm-hmm. like... But... Um, I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is, like, I mean, what happened to him is tragic, but I guess it's not entirely surprising that he would run afoul of the mob, right? Mm-hmm, hmm Well, tragic and perhaps not entirely unpredictable. And yeah. He, he antagonized the wrong people, and he got on their bad side, and he aroused fears of what he would bring to light or help would bring to light. And yeah. Certain people decided they weren't going to let that happen, and now he's dead. Yeah. Well, listen, so, Michael, thank you for bringing that to uh, my attention and to the attention of the readers of Book and Film Globe. Uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a sad story, but it's the kind of thing that we, um, we, we like to cover. We like to, you know, we, the, the globe is in the title, so, you know, you, you have a very global perspective, and we appreciate that, and we'll, we will talk to you uh, soon here on the podcast. I know you'll be back on the site. Thanks for having me, Neil. All right, man. Take it easy. Thank you. That's Michael Washburn, frequent Book and Film Globe contributor. He wrote this week about the new Dave Eggers short story, The Museum of Rain, and also about the life and work of the Dutch journalist Peter DeVries, who died yesterday in Amsterdam. Uh, my name is Neil Pollock. I'm the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV. We are now exiting the book section of the of the show, and we are entering the film section. And we're going to talk to Jake Harris, frequent Book and Film Globe contributor. Hello, Jake. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. Nice to have you back on the show. You sacrificed your mind and body to go, to uh, write about <laughs> Space Jam Two. This week, God help you. Did you you said you were going to try to see this movie yesterday? Did you actually get to the film? Uh, due to some technical difficulties with HBO Max on my end, I uh, am wrapping it up right now. Actually, I'm <laughs> seeing the, the, the final. I'm, I'm watching it as we speak. They're in yeah, the, how's the that final. Going? How's the Tooth Squad doing there? Uh, they're down about a thousand points because uh, mm. they're playing by uh, NBA GM rules. It looks like oh. uh, video game style stuff. So they got yeah. style points and power ups. Uh, but LeBron has just uh, scored, and I am sure that they will come back and win. And there will be lots of lessons learned about uh, fatherhood and uh, letting your kids choose their own dreams and whatnot. Uh, yeah, this sounds god awful. This sounds just. It's, just- I'll, I'll I'll say this: If you were a, um, a millennial of a certain age, uh, like myself, who was in kindergarten or elementary school uh, right around the same time that Michael Jordan uh, had his championship run with the Bulls and Space Jam came out, uh, you can kind of hold two things at once. Where you recognize that the original Space Jam is not a great movie at all, was definitely designed to be a commercial to sell sneakers and Happy Meal toys. Uh, but also just by sheer amount of how many times it was shown on Cartoon Network and how many times you may have watched it on VHS like me as a kid and you just wanted to watch Michael Jordan hang out with Looney Tunes, you can you still have a nostalgic fondness for it, uh, which is where I'm at with the first one right now. But uh, 
it uh, I don't think it was any secret that it, it started as a commercial uh, the director uh, Joe Pitka I think I'm saying that right he directed a 1992 Nike shoes commercial which starred Michael Jordan and Bugs Bunny and then Warner Brothers was like that moved a lot of merchandise so we should probably see if we can make a whole movie out of that uh, and they did and uh, there's a line in there where Wayne Knight says to Michael Jordan, uh, Wayne Knight plays his publicist, for those of you who don't remember or may not have ever cared to see the movie, uh, he said, get your hands on, lace up your Nikes, grab your Wheaties and your Gatorade, and we'll pick up a Big Mac on the way to the ballpark, which is a nice little winking nod to every sort of endorsement deal that Michael Jordan had at the time. And that was only so, semi-ironic. Yeah, like it was, it was true, but also it was, hey, kids, you need to go eat your Wheaties and drink your Gatorade, and you too can be like Mike. Um, so that movie, uh, it was kind of like, I, it was, it came out at a time when it is very self-referential because it references Michael Jordan's departure from basketball to go play baseball for a little bit before he came back to the NBA. Um, so part of the movie was selling people on, Hey, Michael Jordan still loves basketball. He's coming back. And so it was a, a branding exercise for Michael right. Jordan. No, it was also I a merchandise thing. I understand the, right. I understand the appeal of the first space jam. I, mean, I, I was, I'm 300 years older than you and I was, but I was living in <laughs> Chicago, um, mm-hmm. at the time, uh, oh, the movie imagine. came out. Yeah, and so you know, like you know, Michael Jordan was was the, the the sun and the moon and the stars in Chicago and everywhere else, for that matter. Um, LeBron James, as big of a basketball star as he is, does not occupy the same place in the culture this year that Michael Jordan did in 1996. No, and I think if this had come out. A couple of years ago, uh, with uh, you know the NBA Finals win, or if it had come out, um, I guess right before he he moved to the Lakers, um, that might have been it. I remember there there was some discussion when this movie first got announced on if it was going to be LeBron James or Steph Curry in the lead role. Um, so I think they were just waiting to see which one might have. I got wanted to do it, or they thought they could make the most money off of. But this Steph is, Curry is very, very busy being the, the czar of mini golf. Yes, <laughs> unholy moly, um, which is far, far, sounds like a, which a show that I love, and like it, it's got to be far more entertaining. This, this thing just looks like. I mean, we wrote about this in the past. How this is just like a really what and what you point out excellently in your article that we published today on Book and Film Globe is that this is really just a way for Warner Brothers to trot out like it's all of its intellectual property at once and try to yeah. sell it to people. Yeah, and this is like the movie is like IP hell, right? Like there's like a scene where the the, the premise of Space Jam 2 is uh, LeBron James uh, was not apparently allowed to play video games as a kid because he got the Game Boy taken away from him when he should have been practicing basketball. Uh, and then when he has grown up and becomes championship NBA player LeBron James, his son instead wants to build video games about basketball instead of playing real basketball but doesn't want to tell him that he wants to go to a video game conference. And then they get sucked into uh, the Warner Brothers server by uh, the villain who is literally the... It jokes about how everything's made by an algorithm, but they personify that here by a man named Al G. Rhythm, uh, played by Don Cheadle. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I'm trying to get through it. He sucks him through the, they suck him through the server, and they, they have to find uh, a bunch of... The Looney Tunes have been scattered because... Uh, Algae Rhythm says that people don't really want to watch the Looney Tunes anymore. They want to see the Looney Tunes in other things. So the reason that this movie is like almost twice as long as the original one is because there's an extended montage in the middle of like a getting the band back together thing where uh, Yosemite Sam is playing piano at the bar in Casablanca. Uh, Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner are uh, running in the middle of the car chase on Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, Foghorn Leghorn is uh, in Game of Thrones land somewhere. Uh, Granny and Speedy Gonzalez are hackers in the Matrix universe. 
So it's it's all very much a Ready Player One type mashup of like, hey, do you like this thing combined with this thing? And do you like it when we reference that for you to recognize it? Cool, we're going to do all of that, and that's going to be the basis of the that movie. Definitely, that's definitely <laughs> what the uh, creators of Casablanca had in mind. You like, know, I don't know a, what, it, what kid is like, oh, they're at Rick's. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, Mad Max Fury Road, the last time I, I tuned into it was a, 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 a almost Oscar-winning novel about, you know, a, a, a you know, post-apocalyptic science fiction masterpiece. I did, you know, I, I just don't feel like these, some things just aren't, to me, are not intellectual property. They're actual works of art. And, yes, and I, I, exactly. I, I, yeah. I'm just, you know, it, it just really like upsets me when um, when stuff like that gets turned into fodder to try to sell toys. Yeah, and it it, it was very weird to me to see kind of like very also very adult things uh, right next to the roadrunner. Like I don't know. You know, again, like what kid is going to seek out Casablanca? But maybe, like, as a result of watching this, you know, maybe it might introduce some kid to some movies that they had never thought about before, which is you must the remember only, the only positive. You must remember this of. product. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, uh, yeah. The, sure, and you know, and then the thing that the thing that William Schwartz pointed out weeks ago is that the droogs from A Clockwork Orange are in this movie. Yes, as well, so absurdly. And, uh, Pennywise is in it. Agent Smith is in it. Uh, the Shame Nun, I think, was spotted. The Mask. The Shame Nun. In it. Yeah, yeah, like every. Yeah. Pennywise the Clown. Song. That 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 avatar of children's entertainment. Yeah. The character that murders <laughs> children. Yeah. That's just just ridiculous. Well, you died for our sins this week, Jake, and I thank you. I am Stephen Garrett is here, our chief film critic, just back from the Cannes Film Festival. Stephen, you went to France. I did, I did, and I'm 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 alive. I didn't die. Well, I wouldn't expect. Honestly, honestly, I wouldn't have expected you to die, um, unless it was unless unless it was in a plane crash or or like some weird like Wes Anderson fan stampede or something. Um, so, but that didn't happen. So you went to the Cannes Film Festival, and it was it is back. People are back on the red carpet, and screenings are if not packed full, then happening. And uh, you seem seems like you had a great time. I had a great time, I, and they were packed. They were packed for no. better, for worse, all for better. Everybody uh, was either vaccinated or had proof of a negative uh, test, and everybody was on their best behavior and wore masks. But you know, I was in either a theater with eight hundred people or a theater with two thousand people, and they were always packed. And we all had a great time, and everybody uh, watched movies. And there were parties. I heard there was a party for a movie called Cow, which was Andre Arnold's documentary about cows. And I don't understand why there was a party for that movie, but apparently there was. I mean, it doesn't sound to me like it was like 2019 was the last time Cannes was in person, and that was the year of Parasite and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And, you know, that that's like a rare confluence of two legendary movies at once. But it still sounds like there was like a lot of excellent stuff this year. Yeah, I mean, this was a very uh, typical year, aside from all the spitting into vials and testing and wearing masks. Uh, but it by no means was a bad year. And, I mean, it wasn't a vintage year. That was a mic drop year with Parasite and uh, Once Upon a Time, which incidentally played on the same day at Cannes. Both of them played on the exact same day. It was crazy. That was mm-hmm. Once Upon a Time was in the afternoon, Parasite was at night. Um, and that's a rare that's a rare day to have in your life, I think. Yeah. Um, but, uh, no, this had fun movies. Benedetta was your controversial movie. Annette was the, the oddball musical rock opera. Um, you know, there was, uh, After Yang, which was a lovely, uh, A24 film that's coming out, a uh, sci-fi movie about, uh, androids sort of dreaming of electric sheep. It was very Blade Runner-esque in terms of, you know, do, do cyborgs have souls? Um, you know, what else? Uh, Bergen Island is a beautiful uh, kind of meditation about relationships that was intertwined with uh, Ingmar Bergman's legacy and was kind of an auto-fiction written uh, and directed by this woman, Mia Hansen-Love, who dated Olivia Assayas. So, you know, the Cinerati had a lot to think about and unpack with that movie. Um, it was a good time. French Dispatch, the West Anderson yeah. movie, which I'm sure will make a lot of West Anderson fans happy. 
It's very Wes Anderson-y. Uh, it is uh, absolutely stuffed to the gills with uh, very precious and uh, ornamental uh, asides and set decorations. I'm sure that will set many hearts aflutter. I am not one of them, but uh, for the audience who likes it, they will love it. There's two movies that you pointed out that are interesting to me. Well, one was Stillwater, which is a kind of a, like a, a like a, a noirish film directed by Tom McCarthy, who directed uh, Spotlight, among other movies. That sounded pretty uh, pretty good. Yeah, that was pretty good. You know, um, it, it, it got a bit of a mixed response, and I think that's mainly because there's a bit of genre stuff going on in that. Um, uh, Matt Damon's character, his daughter, is in prison uh, in Marseille for killing, allegedly killing, her roommate in a crime of passion. It's very much like that. I forget her name, but the woman in Italy who got uh, prosecuted and persecuted for a, a potential killing, right? As a college student, does this ring a bell? See, if you, if you have that in your head, that's the model that they're using for uh, the background and the reason for Matt Damon's character to go to France. Amanda Knox. What? That's Amanda right, Knox. Amanda Knox. So this is very much, it's got an Amanda Knox vibe, you know, kind of subplot. And, um, yeah. you know, that's, that's the reason why Matt Damon's character, who is an Oklahoma roughneck and works on oil rigs and, you know, is very devout, but also very quiet and bottled up and you get a sense that he was a former alcoholic and he was never really that close to his daughter. So he feels that, uh, you know, he's, he feels obliged to try to help her. And she thinks he's a total screw up, which he kind of is and doesn't want him to help her try to get out of prison. But, uh, right. circumstances kind of push them together. And he ends up actually living in Marseille for like four months and strikes up a friendship and then a relationship with this French woman who could not be more different from, from him. And she has a young daughter, and and then suddenly, for a good long stretch of the movie, it's a sort of hangout movie with these three disparate people who kind of find each other, and and you know suddenly Matt Damon's um, horizons kind of widen, and uh, and it becomes a really touching story of a kind of uh, personal growth, um, and that then kind of ropes back into the Amanda Knox type story and resolves in a in a pretty. Uh, interesting way that I think some people felt was a little too uh, contrived and maybe too genre and uh, because of that felt a little false but I, I think if you read it as a sort of plot contrivance that is really trying to get at a larger issue of it, I, I think the movie succeeds quite well and it was great. It was co-written Excellent. by this guy, uh, Tim Abed again, who's a uh, screenwriter who works with uh, um, Jacques Odiard who makes this kind of thing work a lot you know, he made a profit, and he knows how to deal with, like, kind of genre and mix it in with more metaphysical, more humanist issues. So I, it's a smart movie. It's a smart movie that Tom McCarthy made, and I, I think it's a real gamble for, uh, I think it's focused features that's releasing it. It's going to be out in a few weeks here in the States. It'll be interesting to see if it's received well, but it's it's one of those rare things. It's a, a mid-budget adult drama that's actually going to be in theaters. Sounds really good. Uh, will be out yeah. soon, and it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. The other one that really uh, grabbed me from your piece was the sequel to The Souvenir from Joanna Hogg, which was a movie that I really liked. I didn't really think there would be, like, a, a souvenir expanded universe. <laughs> I know, exactly. And we were also originally uh, promised uh, our cats. Robert Pattinson was supposed to pop up, and he uh, had some scheduling conflicts. So, yes. But uh, it, it, it's a beautiful movie. Uh, dare I say it's an unnecessary movie because I agree with you. I think The Souvenir is a perfect film and uh, it doesn't really need uh, any more to say. In fact, I think the last shot of that movie um, in that one shot does everything that this new movie does, which is point towards a young woman's development into an artist. And her basically The Souvenir Part 2 uh, follows up on Souvenir Part 1 where this young film student has a very intense relationship that ends tragically and in part two she's trying to figure out how to turn that story into a movie so it becomes very much a you know kind of a self-referential exercise um because it's her struggling to figure out how to make the movie that we saw just previous basically um and it's interesting because you see her butt heads with the people and that all takes place in the 1980s mid 80s which is when joanna hogg was herself a 
a film student, and of course, Joanna Hogg also had a very intense, tragic relationship with somebody that was very formative. So, um, because of all that, it feels very lived in, very real, very genuine, and very touching. Um, but uh, I dare I say, somewhat unnecessary. It's almost too much of a good thing. Um, and I didn't mind it. I loved being in her universe and those characters, uh, but uh, I didn't think that it really elaborated or uh, helped to transcend that material into something it wasn't already. If that makes sense. It does. Makes I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, yeah, I'm just amazed at what gets an extended universe these days. And I actually wanted to transition <laughs> from that, from your excellent coverage of cans, and we'll probably talk about it a little bit more next week, but. Um, I, I read the um, – I thought, I thought you'd be a good person to have around to talk about this with the novel based on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I, I wrote about that for today's, uh, for today's uh, site. Um, you know, I, that's, I, it was a really strange book. Uh, I'm sure you haven't seen it yet or read it yet. You've probably seen – everyone's seen it. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, you're a, you like that movie. Maybe not as much as I do, but my god. And I've seen, I saw that movie like three times. And so I, I'm thinking like a novel <laughs> – but yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. I I, uh, I do have the book. I ordered it uh, on Amazon, so it came today. It was released. I suddenly had it in hand, and I I think I more fetishized it than I did actually enjoy it. I was much more interested in you know the forward to the book and the ads in the back for other you know books that were made into movies and some of the other things that he did that were very kind of talismanic in that sense of well, right. Well, and then they, and Tarantino does this and. You know, the thing I, I compare it to is I went to see – one of the times I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was at the New Beverly, which is the theater that Tarantino owns in, in Hollywood. And, uh, you know, it was like an extended universe situation where, like, before the movie they had the full clip of Leonardo DiCaprio singing Behind the Green Door on Hullabaloo, which is available on the DVD extras, and also, like, beer ads and ads for the, the cigarettes that they smoke in the movie, uh, all kinds – Booth. I bought a. I bought like a booth, uh, a button with a picture of Brandy, Cliff Booth's dog, on it. Um, and you know, and, and I, I, I like. Yeah. So, but but I, I liken this book to that because if you read uh, the book, I mean, you know, the movie has the ending of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That scene where Rick Dalton like take, takes a flamethrower to the Manson family, essentially. Um, it, exists in the book but he like you just kind of does it parenthetically on like page 100 and and you know and, and then it's never heard from again like a lot of the more tense and exciting scenes from the movie don't really exist in the book uh which is which is kind of weird and he like instead focuses a lot of his attention well on like the the, the plot of the western that the leonardo dicaprio's character rick dalton um acts in like there's lots of like the dozens and dozens of pages that could have been lifted from a Louis L'Amour novel they're just there right. for no reason there's a lot of backstory I like the backstory about his advent in World War II and after there's like pages upon pages of just random film criticism I mean if you want to know everything about let's say George's career in Hollywood it's probably in there you know there's a lot of like random stuff in there that just kind of feel like you know it's like it's like having co- like uh, six coffees with Tarantino as he rattles off George Papar's filmography at Pneumatically. Um and then and then and then and then the main relationship in the in the movie is between Cliff and Rick, but in the book it's between Rick Dull, this little girl who he has a couple of scenes with in the movie. This is strange. Yeah, it is strange, but you know, I, I think it's. I, I think it's wonderful that it exists. I, I, uh, yep. I'm fascinated by what you're saying and, and by what reviewers have said. And I was fascinated when I heard that, you know, the big climax is this sort of a side thing that happens halfway through the book or, you know, two-thirds of the way through the book. Um, I, I think what's wonderful about it is that it talks about the creative process and talks about the, the um, adaptation process. You know, in a weird way, maybe Quentin was thinking, I'm going to make a book that feels like this is the real book that was then adapted into a film that the filmmaker then had to make all of these uh, compromises and tweaks and, you know, uh, expansions of certain things in the book in order to make the exciting film experience that's very different from the exciting book experience. Um, and it reminds maybe, me, maybe, maybe, although, although, 
Although it doesn't really, it doesn't really hold together as as a novel. I mean, there's not a plot. Of, you know, it's it, it's it's just like I mean, it's I like it. I just, but to me, it's like just a lot of notes. John Cassavetes made a movie called Husbands, which uh, I think was 1970, something like that, 71, and it had uh, you know uh, all, all the all the favorites here, right? He was in it, Peter Falk, Bengazara, Gina Rollins, um, yes. And, um, yeah, and in making the movie, uh, his editor was very confused about what the hell was going on and how to cut together all this footage that he uh, that he did and um, that he shot. And Casavetti said, "You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna actually I'll write out an outline for you." And uh, uh, over you know a few weeks, period of few weeks, he comes back and he's like, "Here, just read this." And he basically written a novel of the entire movie, and it was around 400, 500 pages, 500 pages actually. Never published, and I was actually able to get from uh, a friend of a friend a copy of the book. It's just you know, 500 Xerox to loosely, to loosely pages. It's like a ream of, pa- of, of, uh, of paper. Um, and I read it, uh, and it's fascinating because most of it is not in the movie. Uh, it is all backstory. It's fleshing out characters. It's giving you a sense of who these characters are and what their priorities are and what their relationships are like. And it was really this sort of roadmap for the editor to figure out how to cut together the film in a way that was really compelling. Um, and the studio, he cut together, I think the studio wanted a more friendly version of the film that was fun, and Casavetti's wanted one that was darker and more confrontational. And so like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there are different versions of that story. There are different explorations of those characters. And I, I think it's all valid, and I think it's all fascinating. You know, it's a, it's a sort of choose-your-poison thing. Which one would you want to see? Which is your favorite? And there was talk that he was going to make Once Upon a Time in Hollywood into uh, a Netflix series that was going to be 10 hours long or something. Uh, the way he did with uh, The Hateful Eight, I think he turned that, didn't he, into a six-hour, uh, you know, yes. uh, limited series? I would, I, I would probably watch two so seasons I, of Once Upon a Time. Hollywood, probably. I mean, I, I, or three. Give me, give me endless seasons of it. I don't need any more seasons there, of Loki see, there you at go. this point. There you go. This is your. That's why you're the, the you're the target for this book, man. You love soaking in this world. I'm sure you listen to the soundtrack yeah. too, the CD soundtrack or the record, the vinyl soundtrack. Yeah, I do. I, of all those. Yeah, I do. Actually, I have part. actually. I, I actually turn. I actually like turned on the soundtrack while like floating on a raft in a swimming pool, reading the book. <laughs> there and it was, you go. Wow, you really got. I, it. I, I, I should have done it. I should have. I, 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 um, I should have. If I really wanted to do it right, I would have been installing an antenna on my roof, shirtless, <laughs> while listening to the soundtrack and, and and reading the book. Well, let's talk about Black Widow real quick. So we had a piece that you had a review of Black Widow last week. We had a piece this week about how Black Widow and F9 were underperforming in Chinese markets, uh, and the writer William Schwartz. Schwartz um, had an interesting theory that like Black Widow's themes were kind of like date these kind of dated Cold War themes that didn't really that Chinese people couldn't really relate to anymore and but and you know and it's like all right to, but to me Black Widow was mo- was mostly like a, a family drama and also a chance to showcase helicopters flying into buildings there was a lot of that right exactly you know, it is a little weird and jolting. Like, I'm a child of the, you know, I was born in 1970. I was a child of the 80s and of the Cold War. And, you know, to see the beginning of this movie, uh, Black Widow, uh, where you see a family on the run uh, from, you know, they're, they're basically communist spies who are hiding out in Ohio. But it's 1995, and I'm just kind of like, the Berlin Wall has long since fallen. And, you know, uh, the USSR is long, you know, at that point, it's, you know, five or six years into having dissolved. Uh, and, and it's just a head-scratcher. It always felt like it was a forced sort of uh, situation in, in terms of making her uh, this this former Soviet kind of character, which I guess in the comic books makes more sense and was probably more historically accurate and relevant. Um, right, well, she was created, you know, in, the, she was created in, the, in the mid-60s, you know, the height of yeah, exactly. James Bond. Sexy Cold War spy ladies. It doesn't make sense now. And and you know you, that the whole family living in Ohio in disguise was like it was like it was kind of like this weird um, Marvel Universe version of the Americans. That terrific show, yes. uh, you know, starring Carrie exactly. Russell and Matthew Reese. So, but I was like, but but they weren't they weren't actually a family, and they were all superheroes. <laughs> it was just, it, I, and it just it didn't it, it didn't really it didn't make a lot of sense. 
Um, I mean, you know, I like Black Widow. I, you know, I, I enjoy watching Florence. I can watch Florence Pugh do any. I, I watched her cooking videos on YouTube. I could watch Florence Pugh do anything, and you know, it was it was it was not a it was a decent Marvel movie by by any standards. But I just found it interesting that we, um, the, you know, the, the idea that like you know. Americans are so enmeshed in this Marvel Cinematic Universe that we, we it's like they can't even see its they can't see its flaws anymore. Whereas foreign audiences are kind of aren't quite buying into it. I think that's fair. Yeah, I think that's actually a very interesting point. I, I had no expectations going to Black Widow. It felt like a complete superfluous film, and I didn't understand why it was being made in the first place. Aside from just a, I guess a victory lap thing for Scarlett Johansson, or maybe they're just trying to milk. You know, a little bit more money out of her character and her star power, but I think after it watching made, the movie, I thought, "Wow, this is a good story," and I like these new characters. I love Florence Pugh. You know, it, it just uh, it, it had more weight than I was expecting, and and I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought. It would have made more sense if it had actually been placed properly in the Marvel timeline and come out last year instead of this co- sort of one-year COVID-related, you know, delay. And now there's been like 95,000 hours of Marvel Cinematic Universe television that's, that has already moved the plot forward. So it felt like it was like really yeah, that's actually, the issue of a yeah. Oh, that's very true, too. Yeah, yeah, that's funny to think. And going forward, who knows yeah. what the value of a 10-hour show versus a two-hour film how that's going to, you know, complicate this overarching, sprawling MCU, you know, narrative that Kevin Feige has uh, continued to to spin. Uh, it'll be interesting. Stephen Garrett is our uh, chief film critic for Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. I am Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. All right, so let's talk about Loki for a second. The show concluded this last Wednesday and introduced this new supervillain for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or at least a version of a supervillain, a character named Kang the Conqueror. I won't go into a lot of details about Kang the Conqueror. You don't care about Kang the Conqueror. But he's played by an actor named Jonathan Majors. Jonathan Majors is an actor who was in a movie called The Last Black Man in San Francisco, and then he became widely known for his lead role in Lovecraft Country, which aired on HBO last year and has received a lot of Emmy Awards. He got an Emmy nomination I thought he was terrible in Loki. His character is supposed to be some sort of immortal godlike figure, and he has all this intelligence and this wit, except that I didn't buy it. The character didn't seem intelligent. He wasn't very witty. And I thought the performance was very strange, and Majors mumbled a lot of his line readings. The whole thing just felt off to me, and now we're supposed to buy it. We have to just, we basically just have to buy whatever Marvel sells us at this point. We have no choice. It's like a mandatory product, almost. I mean, at least it is for me. So I found myself very disappointed in the end of Loki. I found myself feeling like I had basically just bought a mediocre comic book. Which, you know, is probably what I did. I bought a mediocre comic book. And I spent weeks and weeks thinking about it. And talking about it. And here I am again. 12 years old. Buying comic books. Except now, they're TV shows. And now they're on all the time. And they're also movies. And they're still comic books. And that's all it is anymore. That's all anything is in the culture. Once upon a time in Hollywood is a comic book. Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir is a comic book. Everything is a comic book. I feel like Andy Rooney ranting about comic books. Because that is also what I am. Do you ever wonder why all comic books are being made into movies and TV shows now? This has been a few minutes with Neil Pollock. I am Neil Pollock, your editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV. We have taped this live on the Clubhouse app. Be sure to listen to the podcast wherever you're listening to it. Every week, Spotify, iTunes, podcastmania.net, whatever you choose to listen to, listen to it there. We're going to close this week with Leonardo DiCaprio's terrible singing uh, in Behind the Green Door, or The Green Door, I think it's called. It's from the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood soundtrack. Check out the movie 18 times if you haven't. Read Tarantino's book and read Book and Film Globe. We'll see you here next week. Dude.
value books and films and good TV. But now, during a pandemic, I appreciate them, I need them, more than ever. That's why I read Book and Film Globe. Bookandfilmglobe.com is the smartest, sharpest commentary about what's good and what's um, not good in the worlds of books, movies, and quality TV. This isn't celebrity gossip, and it's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just smart, clear writing about the best new things to watch and read. Interviews with directors, concise reviews of hot new books, actors describing classic scenes, it's all on bookandfilmglobe.com. And there are three Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewers, so you know you're getting good advice. Check out Book and Film Globe. That's bookandfilmglobe.com. Audio Hopper.